Now, before we get to the word uh, this morning, before I, I dive into Matthew 19, I just want to uh, plant our feet on the foundation that we established last week. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go on our website and uh, listen to last week's message. It was an important one and a foundational one. And as I mentioned last week, uh, because of the situation that we find ourselves in, because the world and the culture around us has designated and declared that the month of June this month is Pride Month, because uh, our culture has decided to set this side a month, this, this, side, this month aside, uh, to celebrate all things LGBTQ+. Uh, we at Destiny, we're here taking the month of June to remind ourselves about what the Word of God says. And again, right here at the beginning, I just simply want to affirm that me, myself personally, our church, our church leadership, uh, we do not hate anybody. We, in fact, are called by Christ to love all people, every single one every single person, that we are all, every human being is created in the image of God with a unique uh, character, with a unique personality, with unique gifts and talents and a unique purpose that is God-given. And my hope for uh, those who would find themselves in the LGBTQ plus lifestyle, uh, that you would find the freedom that only Christ can bring. Uh, this morning, uh, if, if you are somebody that struggles with same-sex attraction or what the Bible would call same-sex lust, I just want you to know that my words today may be difficult to hear, but I want to assure you that they are said in love. That it is... Uh, my love for you and God's love for you that compels me uh, to share with you the words of our Savior this morning. In my heart of hearts, I do not harbor any bigotry or homophobia in my heart towards anyone. But I know that the truth of the Word of God has the power to set people free. And so it is with that hope that I share this with you this morning. Now last week we established that our culture and our nation, uh, if we were look at, to look at the report card, I, I think we could all agree we're, I mean if we're not getting an F, we're getting a D minus minus. I mean it is, it's not going well. Uh, by every metric, in every category, in every subject, uh, economic, socially, politically, uh, home life, uh, every area, strata of society, homelessness, drug addiction, uh, substance abuse, uh, everything is not going in the direction that we would, would hope it would go in for the sake of, of mankind, for the sake of human flourishing. And I identified for us what I believe is, is the root of our problem, specifically here in our culture, is that historically, a Christian nation such as ours, we have had a profession of faith, but we have not rightly applied that faith. We have a gospel that we claim to believe, and that gospel has real-world implications and applications, but many people have been content to profess that Jesus is Lord, but not live 
like Jesus is Lord. As a culture, our actions have not matched our words. Therefore, we don't think like Christians. We don't act like Christians. We don't act like Jesus is Lord. We don't act like there's a day of judgment coming. We don't act like we're going to stand before God. We, we just sort of go on our merry way and take a, a profession of faith to ourselves as a sort of fire insurance, like a get-out-of-hell card. But to think and to act and to live like a Christian is to make Jesus Christ the central focus of our lives. That, that's what Jesus taught. And we do that by loving him. And we love him because he first loved us and laid his life down for us. We do that by loving him, by following him, by obeying his word. Truly, Christ is king. If we believe our profession that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, if we believe that he died in our place for our sins, rose again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, is presently ruling and reigning as the sovereign king over all kings and sovereign Lord over all lords, that he will return to judge the living and the dead. If we believe that profession, we will place his word above all words. Amen. And also, not only is Christ's word the final word for Christians, but for all of creation, as he himself is the word by which all creation exists. We saw that in Colossians 1 last week. By him all things were created, and by him all things exist. And so his word must reign above all words. And so as we look at our culture, we see that there is a lot of confusion today surrounding everything, but specifically surrounding the uh, topic of sex and sexuality. There's a lot of different opinions. There's a lot of different ideas. There's a lot of different philosophies. There's, you can go to a lot of different places and hear a lot of different things. And I think that we would all admit that no matter what our beliefs are on these issues, that we could all say, there's some real confusion. There's some real confusion. The confusion is to the point today where many, many cannot tell the difference between a man and a woman. That many today would say that a man can become a woman simply by putting on a wig and some tacky makeup. All of a sudden, voila, there is a woman. Many today in our culture would, would look you in the eyes and declare to you, that person is a woman. That's how confused we are today. That a man can become a woman, that a woman can become a man, or, or something in between, or nothing altogether. But here's the bottom line, here's the issue. What does Christ say? What does Christ the King say? Does Jesus have anything to say about human sexuality? Does Jesus have anything to say and to speak into the confusion of our culture today? And if he does, his word is the final word. And that's what we're looking at here today in Matthew chapter 19. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee. 
and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and a large crowd followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that today you would give us ears to hear these words. Give us eyes to see. Lord, that you would grant that we would be among the people who can receive your word. That you would open our eyes to see the beauty of your design. Lord, that you would put compassion in our hearts for those who have been lied to by the enemy. Lord, you looked upon the multitudes and your word says that you were moved with compassion in your hearts because you saw them scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Lord, as we see the things that are happening in our culture today, Lord, that we would have your heart Lord, that our hearts would be moved with compassion for those who do not know you, the good shepherd, and that you would help us to be the salt and the light that you have called us to be. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, one argument that is often made towards Christians from the culture is that Jesus never said or taught anything about homosexuality. Jesus never addressed it. Jesus never dealt with it. Jesus never mentioned it. And therefore, it is permissible. Therefore, it's okay. If, if Jesus wanted to deal with it, he would have dealt with it. He never said anything about it. Therefore, it's 
okay. And I want to show you two reasons why that line of reasoning is wrong, that that line of reasoning is false. If you'll flip back with me just a few pages in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We've looked at this passage here from the Sermon on the Mount in uh, great detail over the last several weeks, but it, it actually applies directly to that line of reasoning, to that argumentation that is often said in universities and unfortunately sometimes even said in pulpits in this country today. This is what I was told in university that, well, Paul mentioned homosexuality. Paul dealt with it, but, you know, Paul, he was a misogynist. He, he was a homophobe. He, he, he had all kinds of issues, but Jesus, he never really said anything about it at all. That's what my uh, secular college university uh, taught me. Why they would teach me that in a Photoshop class where we're learning Microsoft Word and like computer programs. I don't know, but the teacher wanted me to know that and the whole class to know that, which how that applies to editing Excel documents, I still don't know to this day. There truly is no neutrality. You either do it all for the glory of Christ or you don't. Anyway, uh, let me stay on point today. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the only way for our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees is for us to possess a righteousness that is not our own, which is to say for Christ's righteousness to be imputed to us, given to us, that we receive by faith. That we enter the kingdom of God not based on our own righteousness, which the Bible says is filthy rags, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness credited to our account. But Jesus here says that not one dot, not the smallest stroke of the pen, not even the, the punctuation from God's law will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Now God's law specifically, specifically addresses the issue of homosexuality and same-sex acts. And the language of God's law in Leviticus 18, in Leviticus chapter 20, the language is not using specific words that's, that is translated homosexual or lesbian or gay or anything like that. The, the words used in God's law, in fact, describe the sexual acts. The very sexual acts are prohibited by God. This is not an issue of translation or an issue of mistranslation. 
It says, you, God's law says, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. It cannot be more clear than that. It's not a translation issue. The, the very act of a same-sex sexual relationship, God calls in his law an abomination. And Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, which is simply to say to put them into full force because now in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, God is writing his teaching, his law, his Torah on our hearts. So the new covenant people are, do not have the law on tablets of stone, but God is writing his, his covenant law on our hearts by the power of his spirit to help us to love what is righteous and to hate what is evil. It describes the, the very acts that are committed in these same-sex unions. Again, Paul in Romans 1 does the exact same thing. It's not an issue of translation. He's describing the sexual acts. He says that women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women... And were consumed with passion for one another, men's committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The law of God is explicit male to male sexual conduct is sinful, female to female sexual conduct is sinful. And Jesus in Matthew 5 upholds and affirms the law of God as good, abiding, and binding today in the new covenant. That's my first answer to Jesus never said anything about sexuality, homosexuality, or gender identity. My second answer is here in Matthew chapter 19, the text that we read at the beginning. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 19. Again, the Pharisees, it says, they come to Jesus to test him. They ask him this specific question, is it lawful, so according to God's law, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now what you need to know is that in Jesus' day, there were two rabbinic Schools of thought. Two rabbis that taught two different things about what Moses' law, God's law, said about divorce. One uh, rabbi taught that you could divorce your wife for any reason. For any reason. She has bad breath in the morning, divorce her wife. She burns the toast, divorce your wife. Literally, that's what this rabbi taught. You can divorce for any reason. The other rabbi, the other school, taught you cannot divorce for any cause, for any reason. There is no divorce, period. And Jesus, in his teaching on this, he says, I'm not going to be pinned into any of these distortions of God's law. He says, first he teaches them about marriage. We'll look at that here in a moment. 
But then he says God's design is for a man and a woman to stay married. And then they, they ask, the disciples ask, well, why, why did Moses and his law and why did God's law permit divorce? And Jesus simply says because of the hardness of the sinful heart of man. Because God knows that there will be sin in marriage, he permits there to be a way out for the victim. Because if, if there was no way out for the victim, it would be the victim who is then being punished by not being able to divorce their spouse for adultery, for covenant breaking, for abuse. And so in this, Jesus says, for, for those who have had an unfaithful spouse, God permitted divorce because of the hardness of heart of mankind, the sinful heart of man. So Jesus is not pinned into either one of those camps. Jesus is not pinned into you can divorce your spouse because of their breath or their toast burning. But if there is abuse, if there is uh, unfaithfulness in the marriage, then there is regrettably permission to terminate the covenant. But here is the point. This is, this is now the issue speaking to, to our cultural day, our cultural moment today. Jesus here teaches on the true definition of marriage. He, he, he teaches them about marriage before he can teach them about the, the legalities and the times in which the marriage covenant can be broken. They, they first need a, a biblical, a creational, a true understanding of marriage. And so that's what he teaches them on. But this would be the place to say, if, if Jesus held a different view of marriage than God in the Garden of Eden, than the Creator than the law, this would have been the point for Jesus to bring correction to that, would it not? If Jesus is okay with homosexuality, which is what is taught, again, in universities, which is taught, unfortunately, in many churches, this is the point where Jesus would have taught on it. This is the point where Jesus would have said, you've got it all wrong. Your primitive ideas of the gender binary. Don't you understand, guys? Gender is fluid. Gender is, is, a, is a spectrum. You have these repressive, antiquated, pharisaical ideas about sexuality. Here, I've come to liberate you and to set you free. But is that what Jesus says? No. In fact, what does he say? How does he begin... His statement. Let's look at this line by line here in verse 4. He answered them. What does he say? The first words out of his mouth. Have you not read? Have you not read what? The newspaper? What CNN says about this? What, what the latest gender experts say? No, he's talking about the Word of God. He's talking about the Scripture. Have you not read? 
Jesus, with this first statement, have you not read, he upholds the scripture, he upholds the creation account as the very words of God. That all scripture is God-breathed. That all scripture is inspired by God. Therefore, all scripture is accurate. All scripture is true. All scripture is authoritative. This is the issue today in our culture. Is that when, when the world says one thing, instead of, instead of going to the word of God and saying, yeah, but this is what the word of God says, we listen. We engage in the conversation. We, they, we engage in the research. You just need to do more research. And then where do they point you to do research? Not here. To, to the philosophies of men. To the philosophies of those who do not believe in the Creator, do not believe in God, believe that our ancient ancestors were goop. I'm sorry, but that's not where God's people go to have their minds and their thinking trained. Well, where do we go if we want to know the truth about these things? Jesus says, have you not read? That's the problem with the church today. We have not read. The word of God is accurate, it is true, and it is authoritative. Have you not read? He goes on to say his second statement, he who created them. He who created them. What does he do with this statement? He upholds that, that there is a creator and that we are the creature. We are not God. You are not God. There is a God who created us, created us in his image. So he upholds this creator-creature distinction. So evolution is out. We are not animals. You see, so much of the teaching of sexuality today is based on the presupposition that we are nothing more than animals. Therefore, give in to your desires, your flesh. You're just an animal. But you're not. You're not just an animal. You are an image bearer of God. You have an eternal soul, an eternal spirit. Jesus upholds this by saying we are created. He created us. He created us in his image. His third statement, he says, he created them from the beginning. From the beginning. So his teaching that he's going to, to give on, on marriage, his teaching that he's going to give on sexuality, this isn't something that Moses brought into being. This isn't something that the Apostle Paul made up. This is God's design from the beginning. This is a creation ordinance. This is the way the world is. God's design for marriage and sexuality, 
as he's going to go on to say, one man and one woman. This design is as hardwired into the universe as the law of gravity. And we transgress this law to our peril. Just as much as, as if we were to transgress the law of gravity. You cannot get around this creational ordinance. This is the way the world is. Number four. From the beginning, God made them, number four, made them male and female. Male and female is not the result of evolution. It is God's good design. And you will recall that at the end of the creative act, at the end of creation, when God finished his creative purpose, what did God declare that it was? Very good. He saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This male and female difference, distinction, it's not an accident. Gender is not a social construct. It wasn't invented by white men to, to perpetrate the patriarchy, to oppress people. The male-female distinction is good, is beautiful, is glorious. It is not a social construct. As if, as if we, as if we could create something so wonderful and beautiful. No. In fact, everything we do on our own destroys. The beauty that God made. All we can do is destroy when we live in rebellion against God. We can no less create male than female. So all we can do is destroy it. Because we think that we are the creator. We think that we can decide, well, I'm going to be a man. So I'm going to go to some mad scientist who calls himself a doctor. And he's going to cut a piece of my forearm off and try to surgically attach it to me with an implant. I'm a man. That doesn't make you a man. That makes you a butchered woman. And it goes the other way too. We, when we rebel against God... We don't make things better, we make things worse. God made them male and female. There is no spectrum of gender. Jesus here upholds the gender binary. As oppressive as you might think that is, Jesus says it is good. Number five. I'm only halfway through. Number five. Therefore, he says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Jesus upholds the creational definition of marriage. That there is a father and a mother. Hello. 
There's a father and a mother. For there to be a son or a daughter, there must be a father or a mo- and a mother. You, you cannot have a son and a daughter without both a father and a mother. Period. There's no way to do it. And that that son and daughter leaves their father and mother and hold fast to one another. This is the definition of marriage. One man, one woman. Jesus doesn't say some people will leave some, you know, non-binary people and the, 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 this Zim will lead this birthing person and they will create a, a non-nuclear family structure. No, that's not what Jesus says at all. A man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. This is the only definition of marriage. One man, one woman. Anything else is an abuse of language. To call any other union marriage is to commit violence against language. Same-sex marriage is not marriage. It is truly a mirage. And I think we as Christians would do well to call it same-sex mirage and not same-sex marriage. There truly is no thing as same-sex marriage according to Jesus. Number six, and he shall hold fast to his wife. This is lifelong monogamy. Lifelong monogamy. Faithful marriage. Jesus has no category for what so many practice today, an open marriage. There is no swinging. There is no polyamory. There is no place for adultery or pornography. The definition that Jesus has for marriage is lifelong monogamy. This is God's design. And this is what the church should uphold as good and glorious. Now we live in a sinful world. Jesus deals with what the ramifications are when this covenant is Broken, But just because some people break the covenant, we don't destroy the concept of marriage. The concept of marriage is not what is broken. People are what is broken. And so the church must uphold God's design for marriage as good and glorious. And we do that by proclaiming the word of God. And guess what? By the grace of God and the power of the spirit of God, we do that when we live it out. When we live it out. Lifelong monogamy, God's design. And he says that the two will become one flesh. What this union, this one flesh union is describing is the 
sexual union. So Jesus not only upholds the creational definition of marriage, but he reaffirms that it is the only legitimate expression of human sexuality. Only a man and a woman can have a one flesh union. This one flesh union, this sexual act between a husband and a wife in marriage is the only legitimate expression of human sexuality. And he goes on to say he, he even elevates it to a higher level. He goes on to say what therefore God has joined together. God is involved in this. God is involved in the covenant of marriage. What God has joined together. This is not just what two people feel like doing. This is not just what seems best to everyone to figure out on their own. No, Jesus says when a husband and a wife come together and they enter into covenant with one another and they engage in a one flesh union, that it is God that is joining them together. What this means is that sex is not just a physical act, but that it is also spiritual in nature. That there is a joining together on the spirit and soul level when there is a sexual union. God, through this, joins husband and wife together spiritually. Therefore, he says, number nine, let not man separate. What God has done, what God has joined together, what God has accomplished, let not man separate. We don't get to change what God has done. We don't get a vote in this. Jesus here in this one little statement, one paragraph, in this one short paragraph, he totally dismantles our whole current cultural narrative on everything. On everything. He dismantles our cultural narrative on Scripture. The culture which would say that these are just man's words, these aren't God's words. Jesus says, have you not read? Didn't you read what God wrote in his book? That these are not man's words, that these are God's words, that these are authoritative words. The Big Bang, that everything came from nothing, we're all just the result of a crazy explosion of nothing in, in nowhere, that nothing in nowhere exploded and poof, here we are. No, the Big Bang is out. Jesus said God was the beginning. Evolution? Nope, Jesus says that's out. God created them. Male and female. Gender fluidity? Transgenderism? Nope, Jesus says male and female. Same-sex marriage? 
Jesus says man and wife. The sexual revolution, liberation, hookup culture. Jesus says one flesh union, lifelong, monogamous, holy matrimony. That we're all just animals. That it's just naturalism, materialism. That sex is just a biological act. That there's nothing else going on there. Jesus says... God joins man and wife together in a spiritual union because there's a spiritual world. That there's a supernatural world and that our actions in this life have eternal consequences. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus doesn't end there. In fact, his disciples are so distraught by what Jesus teaches, they're ready to abandon the institution of marriage altogether. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. Now we know that even Peter was married at this time. We're not, we don't, it doesn't say here what Peter's wife had to think about his comments here. But Jesus goes on to say, not everyone can receive this saying, only those to whom it has been given. He begins to describe a person who's called a eunuch. A eunuch is someone who was celibate because of their um, station in life that certain people, he says here, eunuchs who have been so from birth, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. In that case, he's describing uh, typically men who had had their privates removed by their king, so that they would be able to guard the queen, the royal women, without defiling them and violating them. But then this third category, he says, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus here is describing is celibacy, being celibate. God blesses, hear me in this, God blesses two types of sexuality. Monogamous, lifelong marriage, or celibacy. Both are blessed by God, but there is no in-between. There's no other third option. These are the two options. To be sexually abstinent, to, to refrain. And that is a genuine option. The idea of being sexually abstinent, of being celibate, it sounds foreign to us. It almost sounds like cruel and unusual punishment because we have been so indoctrinated to believe that a person's sexuality is the sum total of their existence. We've been indoctrinated to believe that someone's sexual expression, someone's sexual fulfillment is the key marker, the key identifier of who they are as a person. We've been indoctrinated to believe that sex defines our identity. This is not the Bible's teaching. Sex is good. Sex is wonderful. Sex is glorious. But it's not the be-all, end-all of human existence. We must, as Christians, place sex in its proper category. Jesus was celibate. 
Jesus. Never once had a wife. Never once took a sexual partner. He never once sinned. He never once broke God's law. The Apostle Paul lived a life of celibacy. Are we prepared to say that Jesus and Paul didn't live a life worthwhile? They didn't live a fulfilling life? A life worth living because they never had sex? If that's what we think, we have idolized sex. We have made an idol. We are committing idolatry. We are, we've had our thinking trained by the world. If we think, oh, poor Jesus. He didn't really get to live a fulfilling life. And you might say, well, that's easy for you to say, Pastor, you have a wife. This doesn't apply to you. Listen, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. So there may be those who live, with, live in such a way that they have no attraction to the opposite sex. Jesus says, for you, your course is not to, to try and force yourself into a marriage but rather to live celibate for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. Again, this is Jesus' teaching. There are those who have made themselves celibate for the sake of the kingdom. This is not the teaching of the Catholic Church. This is not the teaching of the Pope, certainly not the current Pope. This is not the Apostle Paul's teaching. This is not organized religion teaching. This is not Matt Bell's teaching. This is Jesus this is God in the flesh. There are two types of sexuality that God blesses. Monogamous, heterosexual marriage, or lifelong celibacy. Both are legitimate ways of living for Christ in the kingdom of God. Now Jesus' words on this issue of sexuality and marriage are so clear. There's, there's no other categories. There, there, there's no other gray areas in this. It is so black and white. It is so clear. These teachings, this word from the lips of our Lord, carry no ambiguity. Therefore, I can say without qualification that if anyone takes a different position on sexuality other than this, what Jesus has outlined here for us, hear me in this, you are not following Christ. This is what Jesus taught. You cannot claim to follow Christ if you do not believe the words of Christ. If you believe something different than what Jesus says, you are not following Jesus. If you affirm someone in their sin, you do not extend to them an olive branch of the kingdom. Instead, you push them away from the redemptive power of the gospel. If you affirm someone in their sin, you isolate them from the blood of Christ. 
If you affirm someone in their sin, you have become an obstacle to them truly coming to Christ and receiving forgiveness of their sins. It is the law of God that shows us our sinfulness. It is the law of God that shows us our need and our deep need for a Savior. Every one of us in here has fallen short of the glorious gospel of Christ. Every one of us in here needs the forgiveness and the saving power of Christ. And it is the law of God, the commandments of God, that drives us to the cross of Christ. And if we look at someone in their sin and say, you don't need to change, there's nothing wrong with you, God affirms you in that, you isolate them from the law that is designed to drive them to the cross. And in doing so, you damn them to hell. It is not loving to affirm someone in their sin. Any sin. It is not loving to affirm my children in things that they do that are harmful. If I see my child engaged in harmful activity, I will intervene if I love them. If we remove the preaching of the law of God, there will be no conviction of sin. And that's what we see in our culture today. We've destroyed the law of God. We've taken the Ten Commandments out of the classroom, out of the courtroom. Therefore, there's no conviction of sin at all. And we as Christians don't even know what to do about it. Some would say, I just don't see anything wrong with it. I don't see anything wrong with same-sex, so-called same-sex marriage. I don't see anything wrong with same-sex sexuality. They're not hurting anybody. The idea that a particular sin doesn't harm anybody, hear me in this, it is a materialistic evolutionary idea. It presupposes that we are not spiritual beings. They're not hurting anybody. It's just the two of them. They're not hurting anybody. No, we're spiritual beings. And when we sin, it harms our soul. Sin is the enemy of our soul. It destroys our soul. Biologically, evolutionary, people say, well, look, it's not hurting anybody. It's not physically harming them. Look at the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. You would think about that commandment. Well, how does coveting hurt anybody? It destroys your soul. Sin is an enemy of our soul. People who engage in same-sex activity are destroying their soul. They're searing their conscience. The materialist, the naturalist would conclude that there's nothing wrong with it only if someone is harmed physically as if there's no physical harm in same-sex activity. I mean, the, the horror stories of people that live in this lifestyle, there, there is physical harm to same-sex activity. No matter what the world says. Did you know this? Did you know that, that homosexuals on average across the board have a 10-year shorter lifespan than heterosexuals? Did you know that? Across the board. 10 years. To, to live the homosexual lifestyle, you essentially guarantee yourself that you will live 10 less years on this earth. 
disease rampant in homo people who live homosexual lifestyle. Not even just sexually transmitted disease. Did you know that cancer, cancer, is far more prevalent in homosexuals than in heterosexuals? Cancer. You are much more likely to die of cancer if you're a homosexual than a heterosexual. So this idea even that they're not hurting each other, that's not even true. From a physical level, from a biological level, but certainly at a spiritual level. The materialists, their presupposition is that there is no God. We're all just biology. We're all just biological agents. We're all just fizzing chemicals. We don't have an immortal soul. We don't have a spirit. There's no day of judgment coming. There is no God. If that is true, then by all means, homosexuality. By all means, everything. If there is no God. By all means, everything. Transgenderism, bestiality, by all means, incest, rape, and murder if there is no God. Because truly, if there is no God, nothing matters. Nothing matters. God is the only thing that gives purpose to anything. And we cannot align ourselves or get on board with or adopt ideas from philosophies that are anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-creation. But if there is a God, and there is, who created all things, who created us in his image that we might glorify him, who has revealed himself to us in his word, who has affirmed his word in his son, who loves us, who has called us into a covenant relationship with himself, who's provided the means by which to enter into this relationship, the death of his own son, and he's given us the grounds by which we should live his word, then we as Christians must submit ourselves and our lives to the word of God for our good and for the human flourishing of our society. Some will even say, well, I still don't see what the harm is. True enough. I will grant you that if you want to say that. You may not see what the harm is. But that doesn't mean that there is no harm. You can't see my heart today. Doesn't mean I don't have one. Some of you might say I don't, but it doesn't mean I don't have one. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It only means that you don't see it. But God who sees all warns us in his word. We are like little children. We need his instruction on how to live in the world that he made. And graciously he has given us his law, his covenant word, so that we might grow and flourish into the image of God. My children this summer have been doing a lot of outdoor activities. Tennis, swimming, Six Flags. It's been great. And every morning before they leave, I make sure that they are lathered from head to toe in F SPF 1 billion sunscreen. <laughs> and do you know what they say? Thank you, Dad, for loving me so much. <laughs> Anoint me with this ointment today. 
You're such a wonderful father. We love you. <laughs> I wish. Every day, they're shocked. What? What? Ah. But because I love my kids. It doesn't matter how much I warn them about the, the reality of skin cancer. What warn them about the reality that that cancer can spread to other organs of your body. That, that this can kill you if you don't properly take care of your skin. I, can, I warn them and you know what? They don't see it. They don't see it. They don't understand it. But hear me in this. Their lack of understanding in no way diminishes the truth or the reality of the danger. And just because you don't see it and you don't understand it, it doesn't mean that there is no danger there. Well, why do you care about what people do in the privacy of their own bedrooms? Why do you care, pastor? Why do you care, preacher? Why is the church so obsessed with this? Hear me in this. What people do in their bedrooms, I truly do not care. I really don't. And the church is not the ones obsessed with this. The church is not the one holding parades on this. But this is not about the bedroom. And it's never been about the bedroom. Let's be real. This is about the courtroom. This is about the classroom. This is about the changing room and the bathroom and the operating room. That's what this is about. And that's what this has always been about. It's not about what people do in privacy. This is about what people are doing in public. Public sex acts paraded in our streets in front of children. God, forgive us. It's not about the bedroom. It's about the public square. It's about the hearts of... The, 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 Jesus, Jesus says, if you would cause one of these little children to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. That's Jesus' words. And we, our whole culture has decided we're going to cause little children to stumble. We're going to confuse them to the point that they don't even know what is real anymore. God help us. God forgive us. This activity is not pure. It is not wholesome. It is not artistic expression. It truly is demonic. And if you find yourself under the sway of this philosophy and ideology, hear me in this, you are being influenced by demons. This is not from God. God's way, one man, one woman, one flesh for life. God's way. God calls that good, very good, righteous, beautiful, holy, glorious. That's what God calls that union. God calls marriage a picture of Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Is what marriage is a picture of. And for those Christians 
who would affirm same-sex relationships, you have to likewise say that those relationships are equally wonderful and glorious. It is not enough to simply say it's okay, it's not a big deal. You must say that that act is, is sacred, is beautiful, is righteous and holy. And that God calls it beautiful, sacred, righteous, and holy. And he simply does not. It's not enough to just say, eh, it's not a big deal, you know, you do you. No, that's not enough. Because of what God calls marriage. If we're going to say that same-sex marriage is legitimate, we must also say that it is beautiful, that it is glorious, and that it is a picture of Christ and the church. And hear me in this, the culture will not give up until we say that. I'm going to end with some good news today. I'm going to end with some good news. 1 Corinthians 6. I know this is long today. It's a big topic. First Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, meaning therefore there are people who would, who would tell us that the unrighteous inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says that is a deception. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There is no way to enter into the kingdom of God if I am holding on to these sins. If I am making these sins my identity. Verse 11, though, is one of the most powerful statements in all the Bible. And such were some of you. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That there is true freedom in Christ, freedom from every sin. Freedom for every bondage. 
freedom from every act that you have done and that has been done to you. Paul says that in the Corinthian congregation, there were some who used to live in this lifestyle, but God set them free. God saved them. God washed them. God cleansed them. I can tell you today that there are some in our congregation that used to live in this lifestyle, but God saved them. God cleansed them. God washed them. God has transformed them by his power. And the good news is that God is not a respecter of persons. We are all sinners. The only people God saves are sinners. And the only flag that God calls us to wave is the white flag. When we come to him, we surrender. When we come to his cross, we lay it all down. All of our sin, all of our shame, all of our brokenness, all of our defeat, everything that we've done, everything that's been done to us, we lay it there at his feet. And he, with outstretched arms, welcomes us, beckons us, like the prodigal son returning to his father. The father runs to greet him. The father takes him up in his arms. The father kisses him on his cheek. God is ready for you to wash you, to cleanse you, to, to, to deliver you from every bondage. He who the Son sets free, the Bible says, is free indeed. It's free indeed. We must only lay it at his feet. We must only repent of our sin. We must only call out to Christ. The only name that can save. Jesus, the name above every name. That Jesus on the cross died for our sins. He shed his blood for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. He endured the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. Because he loves us. Because he loves you. Because he's your creator. Because he made you. And his desire is to see you flourish and to grow into the image of Christ. If you're battling today, if you're battling either affirming these things or, or battling the, these uh, uh, attractions or these temptations of same-sex desires, today is the day to wave the white flag and surrender. Surrender to the God who laid his life down for you. Surrender to the one who was beaten for our transgression, was bruised for our iniquity. Surrender to the one that upon him was laid all of our sin and all of our iniquity so that we could have laid on us his righteousness. And may we all love what God loves and have our, our confession match the profession of the word of God. I invite you to stand with me this morning.
Some of you look at your watch. Is it still morning? Yes, it's still morning. <laughs> Invite our worship team to come. We're going to take of the Lord's Supper together. This is the moment of surrender. Every time we come to the table, we wave the white flag. God loves us so much. The world claims to preach a message of love. But there's only one who laid down his life to redeem ours. And Jesus says, greater love has no man than this. And a man laid down his life for his friends. Jesus loves you. No matter what sin you've done, no matter what things you have committed, no matter what your past, no matter what's in the rearview mirror, Jesus loves you. Jesus came to deliver us, to wash us, to cleanse us. There is cleansing power in Christ. And to all to look to him, all that look to him in faith, call on his name for salvation, receive forgiveness of sins. As we come to the table today, we celebrate that forgiveness that we have in Christ. This is a moment for believers. This is a moment where we come as Christians to profess our faith. That by taking the, the bread that represents Jesus' broken body, by taking the juice that represents his blood, we are professing that our faith is in Christ. That our righteousness is not our own, but that we are clothed in his righteousness today. All are welcome to the table. All are welcome to make that profession of faith. Father, we thank you for your word, your creational word. Your law, which is good and glorious. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus, who laid his life down to redeem our lives from destruction, to, to show us how to live, to, to show us the path, to show us the way that we should walk, and who has poured out his spirit, your spirit, into our lives. As we come to the table today, we remember the great price you paid for our sin. And we remember that though our, skin, our, our sin be as scarlet, you have made us white as snow. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have only through your work on the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.